Hello, everyone. We're so glad you could join us today for a conversation on two key focus areas of ISACA, digital trust and privacy. I'm Betsy Estes, Director of Content Development here at ISACA, and with me is Safia Kazi, ISACA's Privacy Practices Lead. Before we dive into the specifics, let's make sure we're all on the same page about how we define digital trust from a privacy perspective. Safia, from a privacy perspective, what does digital trust mean? Yeah, that's a great question. I think when we talk about digital trust and privacy, I think we're largely talking about data. What data are organizations collecting? How are they using it? Uh, why are they using it? And then once they're done with it or once our relationship ends, what happens with those data? I think it's especially important to know that data are so important now because there's just so much information out there about us, right? Our likes, our housing information, where we work is all pretty easy to find for most people. Uh, so I think it's really important that we understand that if we are giving over data, having trust is truly important. And then one thing I want to focus on is Isaka's definition of digital trust talks about confidence in the integrity of relationships, interactions, and transactions. I think that confidence piece is really important when we think about privacy. And specifically, I think it relates to the idea of transparency. So if I'm giving an organization my data, I need to know why I'm giving it over, what they're going to do with it. And ultimately, organizations need to be very proactive about being clear and honest about what they're doing with data. If you can be clear about why you're collecting data and how you're going to process it, odds are you're going to do a good job of protecting privacy and gaining trust from your data subjects. Absolutely. So I know you touched on this a little bit, but can you talk a little bit more about why privacy is such an important component of digital trust? Yeah, absolutely. So privacy absolutely is an important component of digital trust, but I also think that digital trust is an important component of privacy. I think to have one, you kind of have to have the other. Think of it this way, if my privacy is violated, that's going to violate my trust. Uh, I think a lot of times in a lot of organizations, people tend to think about privacy as something that, you know, if we have a violation, we'll have a fine or it might hurt our reputation, but it's not about us. It's about the data subject whose privacy is violated. And I think once we start to think in those terms and understand the real consequences that can come from a privacy violation, it becomes very clear how privacy and trust are so incredibly intertwined. And I also think that privacy is kind of implicit in trust. I trust you with my data, and so that means that I trust you're going to keep it private and process it in certain ways. So I think it's really important to understand that if you are trying to gain digital trust, you also have to be sure that you're protecting people's privacy. The two really do go hand in hand. Absolutely. Yes. Great answer. So how are privacy professionals, including so many of our members, already supporting and advancing digital trust? Yeah, our privacy professionals are already and have been working in the digital trust space for a very long time. Ultimately, they're working at protecting data subjects. They're ensuring that their data is kept secure, kept private, and that organizations are doing what they need to do in terms of not collecting too much data, etc. Something else I want to point out is when it comes to privacy by design, organizations that are practicing it are already doing a fantastic job of upholding digital trust. 
So in our state of privacy survey, we look at how many organizations are sometimes are always using privacy by design and quite a few are. Now, if you're not familiar with privacy by design, it's this idea of thinking about privacy from the beginning of product development and then throughout its entire life cycle. Specifically, I want to focus a little bit about the seventh principle of privacy by design, which is respect for user privacy, keep it user centric. Ultimately, if you are designing things with the end user in mind, odds are it's a pretty trustworthy product you're creating. Versus if I'm creating something and I'm saying that I'm creating it for somebody, but my actual gain is to try and collect as much data as possible so I can sell it, that's antithetical to privacy by design, and I'm also not going to have digital trust. So I think those people who are already working with privacy by design are doing a fantastic job of working toward more private practices, but also gaining digital trust with their customers. And privacy by design, Isaka has some great resources about that, don't we? Yeah, that's right. We have a book that we published last year. It's a fantastic primer. If you aren't super familiar with privacy by design and you want to see what it looks like, I would highly recommend purchasing that book. Fantastic. So what more can privacy professionals do to drive digital trust initiatives within an organization? Yeah, so I, as I mentioned, I think our privacy professionals are doing a fantastic job with driving digital trust initiatives. That said, one of the key findings from our state of privacy survey reports that we do every year is that privacy teams are understaffed. They're understaffed and they also don't have the funding that's necessary. So privacy teams are being asked to do quite a lot with very little. Now, this is a challenge because if you aren't able to determine, you know, everything that's happening in an organization, privacy violations may happen. And ultimately, it's going to reflect poorly on the privacy team, even though it may not have been your fault. Perhaps the privacy violations started in marketing or human resources or finance. So one thing I would encourage all privacy professionals to do, especially if you're feeling like you're understaffed or you just don't have the resources that you need, is to work with other departments to really empower them to understand their role in upholding privacy. If you can get everybody on board with that, it's going to help maximize the time and energy that you have. Something else that I think is truly critical for all privacy professionals to do is just understand the data that you have. I think in a lot of organizations, especially those that have you know, pretty significant silos, it's hard to know what data you have. What data does human resources have? What data does marketing have, et cetera? And if you don't know what you have, there's no way you can protect it. So it's really important to have an overall understanding of the data ecosystem in which you're operating. Another key thing to do is to emphasize data minimization. I know this can be a challenge because a lot of organizations heard the term data is the new oil. So they started collecting as much data as possible and want to hold on to it because it's viewed as a resource. However, the more data you have, the more information and assumptions you can make about your data subjects, which can, which can potentially be truly harmful, but additionally, you're expanding your threat surface. There's so much more information that could potentially be stolen. So privacy professionals really need to work with other parts of the organization to understand the data that is there, to provide good privacy awareness training, and then also to emphasize that just because we can collect it doesn't mean we should collect it. Absolutely. Um, I know, Slafi, you mentioned other departments, marketing, HR, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, but what I love about what ISACA is doing with our upcoming digital trust ecosystem framework is really bringing in those other areas of the business, you know, marketing teams, HR teams, recognizing how um, they impact 
digital trust in an organization and the important role that kind of everybody plays, you know, even outside of kind of what we think of as traditional IT. Yeah, definitely. So let's switch gears a little bit and look outside of the organization. What are some of the key touch points between an organization and its suppliers, vendors, supply chain regarding digital trust? Yeah, that's a good question. I ultimately think everything is kind of a touch point. Just with the way that business works nowadays, there are very few operations that you're doing are that are solely your company. Let's take a simple example like this conversation that we're having right now. You might just think, oh, this is just Safia and Betsy talking. That's it. That's not true at all, right? So we have the LinkedIn platform on which we're streaming. We have another platform that we're recording this on. We have some ISACA staff on the back end to make sure everything looks right and is functioning properly. Betsy and I probably both have different internet service providers. And any one of those things failing would make this LinkedIn live session not work. So it's really important to understand that you are operating in an ecosystem. And that's one of the things that I really like about the way that Isaka is talking about digital trust is that it's a broader ecosystem. It's not just one organization to another. Um, and it really emphasizes the idea that if you have one untrustworthy party, that could potentially screw up all of your operations. And truly, you're only as strong as your weakest link. Now, I know I've largely been talking about privacy, so I'm focusing a lot on, you know, the individual data subject or individual consumer, but I think it's important to emphasize that trust is not just from one person to an organization or from one person to another person. Trust is also from one organization to another. So it's important to look at your ecosystem and ensure that every single supplier, vendor, anybody in your supply chain is trustworthy, because if they're not and there is a failure somewhere down the road, it will affect your organization. Now, case in point, a few years ago, the major retailer Target was breached and the cause of the breach was actually one of their third parties. But we don't call it the third party breach, right? We call it the Target breach. So it's important to know that it doesn't matter whose fault it is. If there's somebody within your ecosystem that isn't operating quite to your standards, it's probably worth replacing because if a privacy harm comes to fruition, it's going to reflect your organization and probably not that vendor. Absolutely. Yeah, there are so many touch points, and that's really why we talk about the ecosystem, right? Sakit, well, this framework is meant for many audiences. How will privacy professionals find it useful? I think this framework is going to be a fantastic resource for privacy professionals to bridge gaps with other parts of the organization. I mentioned earlier, you've got to break down those silos, you've got to work cross-functionally, and I think this framework could be a fantastic starting point. I'll start off by talking a little bit about bridging the gap between legal and compliance professionals and technical privacy professionals. So legal and compliance professionals are those who are lawyers or might have a legal background and understand the obligations of laws and regulations, while technical privacy professionals have strong ideas of the controls that can be put in place, but may not necessarily be able to read and interpret what GDPR is specifically calling for. I think the digital trust ecosystem framework is a really great way to see, all right, here's what we need to do and here's how we can do it. So I think this is going to help bridge that gap, but I think it can be used in so many other areas as well. I know a lot of times when I do these sessions for Asaka, people ask, well, what's the difference between security and privacy? And truthfully, there is a lot of overlap. 
And I think having something like the Digital Trust Ecosystem Framework is going to be incredibly helpful in minimizing the amount of work you have to do. You might see that the security team is doing something that the privacy team can leverage and really save a lot of time. And as I mentioned before, for privacy teams that are understaffed or that just don't feel like they have adequate resources, it can be really helpful to reuse work where possible. So I think anybody who's struggling to break down silos and better work with other parts of the organization and work in an efficient manner should definitely leverage the digital trust ecosystem framework. Great. So, you know, you mentioned a lot about kind of legal compliance, uh, those sorts of topics. These things can, you know, change uh, pretty often. From your perspective, what are uh, the biggest trends and priorities and things that people should be watching in privacy right now? Yeah, like you mentioned, the regulatory landscape is evolving so quickly, especially here in the United States where states are putting in place new laws and there may be something coming federally, maybe not, who knows, we'll see. Um, but just overall internationally, the legal and regulatory landscape is just changing so fast and it can be really hard to keep up. Specifically with that, I think one of the big challenges is data transfers across borders. Um, as I mentioned before, we're operating in an ecosystem that kind of transcends geography. You know, right now, I know there's people watching this from all over the world. Um, and that just emphasizes the idea that data is not going to stay in a small area. So you have to understand how can you safely and in a compliant way transfer data. And part of the challenge of this is that different governments have different approaches to how they access data and how they use data. And there's also just different cultural norms when it comes to data and privacy and what people expect. So that's a significant challenge, but I think it's something that a lot of organizations are working to fix. I think something else that's really ha interesting that's happening now is data use and data limitations are something that you need to think about. How are you using your data or and are you using them for purposes that you haven't disclosed? So I live in Illinois. We have a very strong biometric privacy law here. And as a result, I've collected some pretty hefty checks from class action settlements. Now, the fact is when there are these large class action settlements, the average person who's not very privacy savvy is going to learn quite a bit about privacy. And I ultimately think that the average person's expectations for organizations with which they're giving their data are only going to increase. I think the standards are getting higher and I think that's a great thing, but I think it means that we might see more class action lawsuits, fines, penalties, and just the reputational damage that comes with not protecting privacy. So what I recommend for organizations that wanna get ahead of this Look at the data you have. Understand what your data ecosystem is. Try to get a good idea of all the data your organization is collecting from one department to another. And then try to limit this. If you have data that you don't need, do what you can to get rid of it. Be very clear when you are processing data and collecting data what you're doing with it. Um, some of these lawsuits are happening because People just didn't know that information was being collected and used in a certain way. Uh, so I think ultimately organizations that can get a better grasp of the data that they have are going to come ahead and not only help the privacy posture of their organization, but help build digital trust with their customers. Absolutely. And, you know, as the world gets kind of smaller and more connected and consumers really get smarter about these things, companies really need to stay on top of um, these sorts of issues. And one way they can do that is through ISACA's resources. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the new privacy resources from ISACA? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned that we released a privacy by design book last year. Uh, this is a primer for anybody looking to learn more about privacy by design and what it looks like in practice. Uh, we recently released a white paper about China's privacy law. It's the PIPL white paper. It's a fantastic resource. If you're potentially already a little familiar with GDPR, it does a really good job of comparing the PIPL with the GDPR and the NIST privacy framework. So it can maybe help you answer the questions of, if I'm already doing this well, do I need to change anything in light of PIPL? And then in, I'd say about a month and a half or so, we're going to be releasing another white paper about 5G and privacy. It just talks about some of the privacy concerns associated with 5G and some methods that we can use to address those concerns. And I should mention that all of the white papers that I've mentioned are available for free downloads from the ISACA website. Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today, Sakya, and thanks to everyone who joined us for our conversation. Please visit isaka.org forward slash digital hyphen trust to find a number of resources from ISACA, including a white paper and an online digital trust course that's actually free for members. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm.